Welcome back to Parashat Ki Teitze. My name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi, the author of the commentary. We are on part C of this podcast, and uh, we're talking about marriage and divorce. We're on the top of page four, if you have the written notes available for you. And um, we've already talked about um, the uh, topics of marriage and divorce as seen through the Judaisms of both Yeshua's day um, to include the two schools who vied for the prominent position. Um, we had the school of Shammai, which was a more strict interpretation of the marriage laws and the divorce laws. And then we also had the school of Hillel, which tended to be a little more liberal in their interpretation of these laws. Of course, our proof text or the uh, the, the um, inspiration for this discussion has been Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. We now turn to some of the um, more explicit um, details concerning what defines marital status within Jewish communities, the legal requirements for being married and getting divorced, and uh, the proceedings involved behind these, um, these um, surroundings. I'm not going to um, give you any information that will allow you to make um, legal decisions. This podcast is not designed for that purpose. As I said in my disclaimers to both Parts A and Part B, um, I'm not a divorce um, uh, expert. I'm no marriage counselor. Um, I'm simply a Torah teacher, someone who has the... um, opportunity to speak on this subject, and also someone who has um, a number of resources that I can get my hands on in an effort to uh, bring some clarity to this topic. Again, please do not send me emails requesting marriage, uh, marriage-type counseling. You're welcome to send emails with just general questions, and I'll see if I can field them. But uh, beyond that, I, I'm not qualified to, um, uh, you know, to counsel people as far as marriage is concerned. That being said, let's start near the top of page 4 with part C here. As I mentioned in the commentary, for the sake of clarity, I've decided to extend this commentary um, to include a lengthy discussion about marriage and divorce. This next section is entitled, What Properties Define Marital Status? Now, marital status refers, of course, to the lawful recognition of the agreement between a man and a woman to be husband and wife. That's what it means to be married, in case some of you out there had questions. I know there are many people. Um, I've not met too many of them, fortunately. But I've. Uh, but there are, there are I, don't, I shouldn't say many. I know there are some people who feel that um, they don't care what the government says. They don't care what anyone says. If they find someone that they consider their spouse and they, they've agreed to uh, live together and be together, when, well, then by golly, they're just going to be together. I don't believe that that's the proper way to go about things. I believe that God has established the authorities within our communities for a reason, and um, there's there's nothing good that can come from um, bucking authority uh, the way we are so prone to do in our uh, society these days. And this, of course, would include uh, the legal requirements to be married. So along with the legal marital status of being married, uh, the husband and the wife also naturally acquire rights and obligations to their respective spouses. These rights and obligations begin when the couple, the other uh, couples are married, and they may continue to a certain extent even after the termination of the marriage. Of course, if there is a divorce, you understand how this works. Um, 
Generally speaking, there are still legal obligations between the two parties to a certain extent. Marital status is one of the basic issues involved in a lawsuit for divorce. Of course, we call this marital dissolution or annulment or nullity. At the end of a marital dissolution or nullity proceeding, the legal status of husband and wife is terminated and the spouses are returned to the legal status of being unmarried or single persons. It's, it's, again, it, it will come to no good if we buck the authorities of our societies because it is within those authority structures that God himself um, extends his authority um, to recognize the, the status of either married or single. Simply put, the society in which we live, and again, this could be different from, from country to country, but the, the society in which we live and the marriage laws and the divorce laws in which we find ourselves um, subject to in that particular country are really an extension of God's authority. All authority comes from God, no matter what, what country you're in. And so, it, it, again, it's not a good thing to forego such authority. It's, it's, it's wise to submit yourselves to the local authorities of where you're going to have your residence, and uh, they're going to help you figure out uh, you know, marital status and, and single status. Marital status is automatically terminated upon the death of one's spouse. This, of course, is Torah. The survivor becomes an unmarried person once again automatically. That's why we say in the wedding vows, till death do us part. And, of course, this is in agreement with the Torah, where the person is legally married to the other until one of the persons dies. Let's move now into some of the requirements for being married. This next section is entitled, What are the legal requirements for being married? Of course, keep in mind, this whole discussion is couched within the um, confines or normal boundaries of a Jewish community. I'm simply referring to information that I've uh, culled from different resources as it pertains to the Jewish community. I can't speak for all other communities. The Jewish community naturally is going to take their cue from the law, the Torah, uh, and in this case it's going to be both oral and written. This next section, as we begin, starts off by letting us know that the legal requirements for a man and a woman to marry vary from state to state in the U.S. Now, that's obvious, and um, in some cases it can be quite... um, Quite an interesting difference from state to state, especially since these days there are some states that allow for same-sex marriages to be entertained and other states that won't. And so people, we talked about, of course, homosexuality in part B of this commentary and how that God does not smile upon such a lifestyle. And yet there are states within the um, country of the United States that have decided to allow for same-sex marriages to be, um, well, to be to be permissible. And uh, if you're of that persuasion, and if you're listening to this podcast, I, I, I pray that you'll repent. But if you're of that persuasion, then you'll have to travel to that state to get that uh, to get that legal allowance to join to your spouse. Although there are differences between the requirements in their states, a marriage between a man and a woman performed in one state must be recognized by every other state under the full faith and credit clause of the United States Constitution. Again, you're married in one state. You can't get married in every state uh, to same-sex partners. But once you are married, um, I guess what this would say is then that the uh, other states have to recognize that it's a, it's a legal union, you know, whether they like it or not. Um, let's look at some of the requirements set by state law. 
in a series of bullet points now here in my commentary. These requirements can include, of course, this is varies from state to state, but and and Judaism again, Judaism recognizes that the authority is vested in the country that they reside in, and that ultimately it comes from God. Therefore, Judaism as a whole is not going to buck the system either. They are going to say we need to comply. So if you're you know, a United States citizen and you're a Jew living in the United States, well, then you're going to comply with the state laws and the, and the, the, you know, the, the country laws uh, that you have residence in. So let's look at some of these uh, requirements. Again, from state to state, they can vary, but generally speaking, they look like this. Um, bullet point number one, a marriage license issued by the county clerk or clerk of the court, along with the payment of the fee, uh, is generally required. Uh, bullet point number two, both man and woman must be 18 years or older or have the consent of a parent or a judge if younger. And if they're younger, we'll see what the uh, details are cons uh, you know, later on in my commentary here. Uh, bullet point number three, um, generally, requirement, uh, generally a requirement is proof of immunity or vaccination for certain diseases. Uh, next bullet point, um, proof of the termination of any prior marriages by death judgment of dissolution, which is, of course, divorce or annulment. And this is because in our country, we do not allow polygamy, if, if, legally, if you understand where I'm going with that. Uh, you know, you, you can't get married to one spouse if you're already legally married to someone else. That's the point. Bullet point number, or the next bullet point, uh, usually required is sufficient mental capacity um, to even go through with the marriage. Now, often this is determined as the ability to enter into a contract um, not necessarily that you know two people are completely sane uh, if they're in love with one another. Quite the opposite. Love tends to make people crazy, and 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 crazy people do crazy things. But um, again, usually all it just means is that they're able to um, enter into a contract. Next bullet point, a requirement that usually shows up from state to state, is the couples are not to be close blood relatives. Now, of course, this is this is in accordance with Torah as well as in accordance with our own constitutional laws. Couples are not to be close blood relatives. Our our, our constitution is based on the on the on the the new. Te I'm sorry, is based on the uh, 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 the covenants established in the Bible, and therefore, uh, uh, you know, our forefathers recognized that um, brothers and sisters should not get married. <laughs> it's it's not only immoral; it's uh, it's illegal, and so. Um, that's one of the requirements. Uh, next, we usually find a blood test for venereal disease to be a requirement, and then also satisfaction of a waiting period from time uh, from the time the marriage license is issued to the time the marriage ceremony is performed. There's a little waiting period there. Next requirement, a uh, bullet point shows performance of a marriage ceremony with witnesses and a person recognized by the state to have the authority to perform marriage ceremony such as, of course, a religious persona, a priest, a rabbi, or you can just have the judge, you know, slash justice of the peace. Um, you can get married in front of the justice of the peace. Or go down to one of those little chapels in uh, Las Vegas and get married by a person dressed up in an Elvis costume, right? As long as they have a, uh, uh, the authority to perform the marriage ceremony, as long as they are recognized by either the state or the, uh, uh, you know, the, the country of, of where you're going to get married, then I guess it's okay. Uh, last two bullet points. Um, the requirement usually is that uh, recording of the marriage license after marriage ceremony is performed. Um, the marriage license has to go on the records. And then finally, consummation of the marriage by either the act of sexual relations, and, and of course only a few states require this, or 
um, if I'm correct, there is a um, like a, a probation period, a, a waiting period after you get married that um, that will automatically consummate the marriage after a certain time. I don't have the details on that time frame. I just I know for sure um, that uh, obviously if you if you if you cohabitate with your spouse, well then that's that's automatic consummation right there. And of course, again, that's uh, modeled directly after the biblical pattern. A marriage performed in another jurisdiction, for instance, overseas, you people who are um, um, military. I was military, and while I was in Korea, where I met my wife, Suki, um, the jurisdiction extended uh, from the United States into Korea, where I was stationed. So um, if a marriage is performed in another jurisdiction, for instance, overseas, it is usually valid in any state as long as the marriage was legal in the jurisdiction where it occurred. So when I got married in Korea, to Suki, um, then uh, because it was it was uh, recognized because the military recognized um, the jurisdiction in Korea. Well, then when I got to America, the paperwork showed that um, the uh, visa uh, due to the marriage that took place in Korea, the visa that my wife carried allowed her to come into our country and stay for a certain amount of time while we worked through the the uh, finalization of the paperwork so that she could become an American citizen. But the United States recognized the marriage in Korea. So that was great. Um, there's another example that my that my paper brings up, and it's for, it says, for example, if a couple is married in Canada, again, I gave the example of another country, but let's say they got married in Canada, and then they moved to California, California will recognize the validity of the marriage as long as the requirements for a valid marriage in Canada were present at the time the couple entered into the marriage. And that's exactly what took place in Korea. Uh, we, Suki and I, complied with all of the Korean laws um, re- you know, necessary to join, and therefore once we got to America, the United States recognized the union. Let's move now more specifically into the Jewish community, because all the information I just gave you, although the Jewish community in the United States generally complies with everything I just gave you, let's now move specifically into um, Judaism and how divorce is handled within a specific Jewish community. So the information I'm going to entertain now does not necessarily reflect outside of the Jewish community how things are done. I, I don't know exactly how all divorce proceedings are done outside. Again, remember, I, I warned you, I'm not a divorce expert. I'm not any type of a marriage counselor or, or relationship counselor or anything like that. I'm just using the resources that I was uh, able to get to when I put together this commentary. This next section is entitled, How Does Divorce Work in Judaism Today? Well, we already talked about the marriage and divorce as seen through the eyes of the Bible, uh, Matthew chapters 5 as well as chapter 19 give the New Testament perspective. But this, of course, is built and based upon what the Torah has already established. Therefore, Deuteronomy chapter 24 is going to be the basis for anything that Judaism is um, is going to come up with. Keep in mind that today's Judaism, which would naturally include rabbinic Judaism slash traditional Judaism, is not necessarily concerned with what Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 19 have to say. The Jewish communities of today don't concern themselves with the New Testament, is my point. Therefore, if we want to understand the Judaisms of today and their uh, divorce proceedings, then we need to closely examine Deuteronomy chapter 24 and any subsequent Talmudic passages that are based upon that passage. 
Divorce in Judaism today is accomplished by the bet din through a, through a document known in Hebrew as a get. And it's spelled G-E-T, just like get me a cup of water, get me a cup of tea, or get something. The official documentation of divorce, according to Jewish law, is required for either party to remarry. Notice Judaism's emphasis on the religious tie in the commu- in, in, in the uh, marriage, in the union. They are seeing this as heaven um, either approving or disapproving of another union. That's why the get is required, the legal um, bill of divorce is required. It is therefore extremely important that couples who divorce follow the proper procedure with a respected bet din or a religious court. Bet din, by the way, is like a house of judgment, a religious court. Much grief can be avoided by performing and by performing and documenting to get properly, thereby avoiding the tragic situation where one party is left unable to remarry without an acceptable get and must remain what we call an agun for a male or an aguna for a female until a get is executed. Basically, an agun or an aguna is a person who's kind of in limbo. They're not fully married and they're not fully divorced. They're kind of in, in, in you know in, in, in middle status. And um, that can be a, a, a very emotionally draining place to be, especially if you want to, uh, uh, you know, come to some sort of closure. So um, uh, again, the, the the get has to be um, obtained properly, and it has to be filled out properly. Many misconceptions exist concerning the traditional divorce method and how it is administered now. Remember. Divorce was first introduced in the biblical text in this Deuteronomy passage here in our Torah portion. And yet since then, 3,500 years later, here we find ourselves in the 21st century, and men and women are still getting married, men and women are still getting divorced, but some of the proceedings have necessarily um, changed down through the centuries. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to include a short description of the procedure here for your information. This is as a... As, as um, pertains to current proceedings, you know, 20th, 21st century, etc. I'm not necessarily going to describe how it was in Moshe's day. To be sure, I don't know exactly how it was. So this next section in my commentary is entitled The Jewish Divorce Decree and Proceeding. Okay, The divorce and dissolution of marriage are affected through a document. Of course, we talked about this document. The document makes no reference to responsibility, blame, fault, or settlement details. Isn't that nice? The document doesn't concern itself with those things. It has no bearing on any aspect of the civil divorce and the settlement between the two parties. No religious blessing or divine reference is included in the, de- in the document, in the get. It's a very simplified document. There's no prayer or profession of faith um, required to... Uh, to have the get um, put together and signed. The get is strictly a religious legal document which, uh, which really just performs one function. It breaks the existing bond created through marriage and acknowledging that the couple divorcing are now free to remarry according to Jewish law. That's all the get does. It's very basic. Judaism tries to keep it simple because they feel that there's enough pain and frustration already caused by the other aspects of the couple splitting up. Why complicate the matters with a a bunch of paperwork filled out in triplicate and and, and this and that. The get itself is only a 12-line 
document. Very simple. The decree must be letter perfect, written in the same manner and with the same requirements as a Torah scroll. In other words, um, it, it must go through the strict scrutiny of a scribe, um, if it's written in Hebrew, um, to make sure that all of the letters are perfect. There are no gaps, between, unnecessary gaps between the letter. There are no um, uh, typos, as it were. Um, and the requirements for a Torah, Torah scroll, for handwriting a Torah scroll, are quite strict. And so you can kind of get the idea um, that a get might go through as well. Again, an experienced scribe under the supervision of a specially trained rabbi is required to to print out a get. It's not something. It's not some soft piece of software that you can um, install to your computer and print it out on Lotus Works or something like that. Just get that out of your head. A get is only prepared if both parties are seeking to end their marriage of their own free will. No one is allowed to get a get if there is coercion or what do we call it uh, duress involved. Before qualified witnesses and the officiating rabbi, the get is prepared at the request of the husband. That is again in accordance with Jewish uh, understanding of the passage in Deuteronomy where the husband issues the get to the wife. That is the normal procedure within Jewish communities. Husband gives the get to the wife. It is the husband's responsibility to give his wife uh, the bill of divorce. Um, once the husband gives the wife the get, everything's all set up. Well, then the witnesses sign the document and it is reviewed carefully for every requirement. The get is then, watch this, you ready? This is kind of neat. The get is then given to the man who establishes his ownership of the completed document. Once it's signed, once it's, um, it's, it's examined and it's, it's shown to be accurate, it's given back to the man. And at that point in time, because it's simply given to him, it now it becomes his again, legally. Then watch this. The get is then given to the wife to transfer ownership of the document itself to her possession. Thus, he gives his wife a get. You get it? No pun intended there. So, giving ownership of the get to the wife makes the what? The spiritual break and the separation between the couples. The man is saying to the wife, you are no longer my wife. The woman then walks to the uh, walks to exit the room with her get. She leaves. She has the get in her hand. She walks away. She walks to the exit. And what this does is it demonstrates that she is free to leave with the document, which assures her ownership without restraint. Okay? That's all she does is she walks over to the door. Then after that, she usually actually returns to the rabbi and to the witnesses, and then she displays the get and the divorce is concluded and documented. She, she opens it up and shows it to them to show that it was mine, I walked away, and all of this is walked out. It's all demonstrated with real life, um, um, how shall I say, demonstrations as it were, uh, a demonstration in the natural of what's taking place in the spiritual. And that's just the way the Hebrew mind thinks, and I think it's rather neat that um, that is retained within Jewish traditions today. Again, um, after this, after the, the, the divorce is concluded and documented, then proof of the proper procedure is given to both parties, and then at that point in time, um, things are, are pretty much over. Again, it's not a long document, it's not a thick document, and it's not a, a complicated matter. Unlike um, traditional, say, non-Jewish uh, divorce proceedings, it's not meant to be dragged out uh, for months and for weeks and months on end in, in a court of law. Um, it's unnecessary in Jewish eyes to, to drag a person through all that. It's it's something that it's it's a spiritual tie to begin with. Therefore, it requires a simple spiritual breaking of that tie. Now, the required statements made during the proceedings are neutral 
and non-recriminating or demeaning. In, in, in the Jewish view of divorce, it's bad enough, again, that, 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 that two people's union are dissol- is, is dissolving. But we don't want to make it sound as if either party is, is, is a bad person. I understand people have their faults, but notice that during the proceedings, um, statements are, are, are try to are, are they, we try to keep statements to a minimal if they are going to be demeaning of one another. Um, for instance, in instances where geography or other reasons make it impossible or undesirable to have both parties together, then the proceedings can be performed through proxy or power of attorney. Today, you know, within non-Jewish settings, we may go to, to this extreme if we just hate the other person. We can't stand to be with them. We can't stand to see the other party. But within Judaism, if at all possible, then the two parties try to be there together so that, that, so that this can just be dissolved smoothly and quickly, painlessly. Um, it is possible to arrange a proper get without any contract between the divorcing husband and the wife. In fact, the entire procedure normally takes only a couple of hours and does not require hearings or other additional proceedings. Again, I, I'm not mentioning all these details so that those of you who have never um, been married or, or divorced within a Jewish community can go through it so you can see what it's like. Um, again, fight for your marriage, people. Fight for your marriage. Um, don't seek the easy way out. Don't, 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 don't just go into the into the um, relationship or the contract thinking, you know what? I've got my receipt, and if this if this doesn't work out, I'm just going to return the product and get another one. In other words, if this woman doesn't, if this woman burns my toast, I'm just going to take her back to the store and get my receipt and get another one. Don't think of it that way. God doesn't think of it that way, and uh, I think we should really re-examine the the seriousness of the union that we enter into when we uh, decide to marry someone. It, it's it's a serious matter. Having said all that, um, it is my sincere prayer that those of you listening to my podcast who are married and are perhaps struggling in your marriage, it is my sincere prayer that you would seek the proper channels necessary to, to begin repairing the relationship. Don't, don't just instantly or immediately start seeking out ways to dissolve it. it don't take the easy road out and just, uh, again, try and think, well, this one didn't work. I, th- I think I'll try um, a, a newer model, <laughs> you know, get an upgrade. Um, that that's really not the heart that God is looking for, especially the heart of people who are part of the Torah community. We should be setting the example. And so, having said that, let me draw my commentary to a close in this conclusionary section, and I'll mention also that we are the examples. This last section in my commentary is called Conclusions. We're at the bottom of page 6 if you have the written notes. In its most normative sense of application, the Torah addresses the individual on a complete Level That is to say, as an overview, um, the Torah has the community in mind. When it, speaks to, when it speaks to its readers, it's thinking of a community. The Torah was given to a community. Yet, the Torah leaves room for each individual and unique situation. God is interested in each and every individual. And when you stop and take time for God... You stop and take time out to speak with God and bring God into your own individual situation. Well, then he also stops and takes time out to be with you individually. He doesn't tell you to take a number. He doesn't tell you, get in line and I'll deal with you um, um, as a group. Um, you know, go stand over in the corner and I'll just talk to the room collectively. God speak to us, speaks to us on an individual level because he knows us all individually. Surely each unique 
situation needs addressing. And that's why Hashem set into place certain mechanisms within our own communities which would help deal with the fluidity of ever-changing community life, especially among the followers of Hashem. God knows what we're made of. God knows what we're going to encounter. He knows what we're going to go through. And that's why he gives us his words of instruction so that we might have a more fulfilling experience as children of the living God. Now, we talked about how that the written word of God is complete. It is a perfect revelation of God's words and God's ways to us. However, the Torah is not meant to speak to every situation. It is not case law. Therefore, Judaism has designed halakha um, to fit the times in which it is being applied. Halakha is meant to be elastic. It's meant to be um, uh, uh, adaptive to every situation in which it finds itself. It is identical to case law in which you'll find um, uh, a current situation leaning on a previous ruling to gain uh, inspiration on how to solve the problems within the current situation. If you've ever watched any courtroom scene, you'll see that lawyers will often lean on prior cases, ones that are similar to the one that they are, are handling at the moment, so that they can perhaps reach similar rulings as the previous, um, you know, the previous case. That, and that's how case law works. Halakha is, does the exact same thing. It is rightly called the humanization of Scripture. It takes Scripture and it allows for the human experience to 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 take the 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 um, the, the uh, foundation of the Scripture and to apply it to every situation in every time period. So, sure, the Torah was written about thirty five hundred years ago, thirty four thirty five hundred years ago, and yet because of the Spirit of God and the feature of Halakha, we are, we we are able to take what the Torah said to communities thirty five hundred years ago and come up with proper rulings for today that we can actually utilize and that actually speak to our lives. The Spirit knows what we are going through. The Spirit of God knows. And therefore, the Spirit of God is going to use the Torah. And I do believe the Spirit of God uses halakha um, to, to, to get that job done. What happens is this gives it, the Torah, the feeling of stability. It also gives halakha the feeling of stability, right? Because... Halakha is based on the scriptures from which it is derived, and yet at the same time, because Halakha is meant to address current situations and current times, then room is allowed for individuals and unique application on every level. So Halakha is not all that bad. We talked about Halakha in last week's Torah portion to uh, Parashat Shoftim, and I talked about Halakha in part A of this own commentary. And yet still some people feel that Halakha is wrong, oral tradition is wrong. And it's not all bad. It's not all wrong. We should not throw it out, throw out the baby completely with the bathwater. Um, give Halakha a chance, all right? Thus, our Torah portion forms the basis in Deuteronomy 24 for our modern Halakhic rulings today, especially within Jewish communities, as Yeshua proved to his first century listeners. Here we had, um, what, uh, you know... Um, 2,300. So we'd had 14 or 1,500 years had already gone by since the giving of the Torah, and yet Yeshua was able to um, answer and address the issues of his day using the very same passages that we are drawing our study from today. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. I've heard some today attack Halakha on the basis that tradition has no merit in the lives of a believer in Yeshua. I've heard 
Christians say this. I've heard Messianic Jews say this. Well, now that I believe in Jesus, then I don't follow tradition. I only follow the written word of God. I've also heard the very scriptures attacked uh, on the basis of antiquity and out-of-date rulings. People might say, well, you know, I would follow scripture except it's 3,500 years old. You know, I can't follow something that was written to them. I need something that was written to me. So I'm going to seek the Lord and I'm going to ask him, what, what word does he have for me today? So we have people falling into various camps within the Torah communities of the day. We have people rejecting Torah because they feel it's outdated and antiquated. And we have people rejecting tradition because it's not Torah. You know, gosh, I I guess you can't please everybody. In my opinion, and in my experience, and this experience, by the way, is based not only on my own community, but on the various communities that I've had a chance to visit um, down through the years and down through the uh, countries that I've been, that I've visited before. This would include, of course, Korea, Japan, America, and uh, Canada. There can exist harmony in the seemingly simplistic commands of the Torah of Moshe when combined with the halakhic decisions that are derived from the Torah. Halakha and Torah are designed to go hand in hand. The halakha is, is based on the written, but where the written does not flesh out all the details, the halakha steps in and is able to establish um, some rulings based upon the written, and therefore we are able to uh, function in our communities as men and women, and uh, our relationships are, 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 are not left simply hanging because we don't have all of the uh, um, details of, of, of maybe a, a marriage or a divorce spelled out for us in the Torah. Halakha and Torah work hand in hand. To be sure, don't we all as believers cite the very same Torah as evidence for our rulings? Yeah, go to one church. Watch this. Try this. Try this experiment on your own. Go to a church. Ask them why they do what they do, and they'll probably cite this or that verse. Go across the street to a different church who has a different set of opinions or traditions. Ask them why they do what they do, and you know what? They're going to cert- They're going to cite passages as well. So isn't it funny that all of us, both Jew and Gentile alike, Christians and, and Jews, we both use the Bible as the basis of our halakhic decisions. Again, church has halakha. They just don't call it halakha. It's usually called church policy. But it's usually based on the Bible. It's usually based on the Bible. So we should understand that, that, that we all use the very same Bible to, to, um, to back up the decisions that we make. And yet, there exists great diversity among our ranks. Isn't that fascinating? Great diversity. Should this diversity give rise to disagreements and disunity? In my opinion, it should not. I think that despite our diversity, despite our differences of opinion, we should still have community and we should still have unity. Unity within our diversity. God doesn't expect us to all be star-bellied sneeches. You guys familiar with the story? Dr. Seuss's book where everyone wanted to look the same. So they all got stars painted on their bellies. The sneeches. They all wanted to look the same. Everybody went through the machine and got a star on their belly. And then those who didn't have the star said, Hey, we, 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 we want to be like those who don't have the star. And round and round it went, went until finally the machine broke, if I remember the story correctly. And it ended up that some had stars and some didn't. But you know what? In the end, it didn't matter. They were all sneeches, and they were all a community. And so whether you were star-bellied or non-star-bellied, um, they learned to live together. And that's what we need to do today. Whether we're Jew or Gentile, in Messiah, our differences can be put aside in the um, unity of the Spirit. We can begin to better understand that um, uh, married and divorced alike, we all 
try to live our lives governed after what the Word of God dictates to us. And even though we're going to come up with differences of of halakhic opinion, um, we still need to understand that there's one Lord and one God, and so we need to rally around um, His throne. It would all be better, of course, if all of us knew the Lord personally. Now that day is still yet coming, so we'll just have to wait for that. But for now, we still need to press in. We still need to press in. Rather than separate we believers one from another, the scripture and the halakhic decision that we derive from them should be uniting us, especially in the eyesight of the, the, of the disbelieving world, in which we are surely being examined for our faith. You, you, ever, you, ever, you ever realize that as a believer that we are being watched? The minute you place your faith in Jesus, you get placed into a fishbowl, and guess who's watching? All the other sharks on the outside. The world is watching Christians. The world is watching sincere believers. They're watching to see if we're going to make a difference or not. Because we claim to have the truth. We claim to have the life. We claim to have shalom. And yet, if in our claim, there is no difference between the way we govern our lives, this would include, of course, our relationships within marriage, and the way that they govern their lives, if the world looks at us and they see that our marriages are falling apart at the same rate that their own marriages are, well then, what kind of witness are we leaving to these people? We've got to understand that even though we have our differences in opinions when it comes to halakhic rulings and and the disagreements that we're going to have in in our communities, that we cannot practice divorcing ourselves one from another. And this does not only include divorce from man, uh, man from woman, but divorcing man from man. That is to say, divorcing myself from my... Um Sorry about that. Divorcing myself from, for instance, my my church or my synagogue or my my congregation just because I don't like uh, 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 you know the robes that they chose for the choir. That's wrong. That's wrong. Difficult issues to come to halakhic rulings on, such as marriage and divorce, should not discourage us from setting the example among all men, even as the Torah commands us to do. Yeshua said it well. The world will know that you are my disciples when they see that you have love one for another we've got to expl- uh, ex- ex- it uh, um we've got to display love one for another we've got to uh we've got to walk in unity i i know it's tough but we can do it with the spirit far from becoming another statistic those of you who are married and contemplating divorce don't do it don't do it as many believers have become a statistic god help us not to become another statistic we do not need to become another statistic according to the world's facts and figures. It's a shame that the church is not too far behind in their own um, divorce statistics to the world. What should we be doing as believers? Well, we should be leading the way in our examples of what a loving couple joined by God should look like. Again, I understand sometimes there are irreconcilable differences and a divorce has to take place. Then so be it. But you know what? Do all you can before you reach that step. It should be the very last step that you take. You shouldn't be the first step that you're seeking. So as I draw my commentary to a close, just remember, this pursuit of, 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 um, of community is justice. It's justice. Because our God is right. Our God is a just God. And justice should not only exist as some noteworthy concept that can be pointed out in the lives of those who follow Hashem. No, justice isn't something for the books. Like Hashem, the way we treat one another, male to female, man to man, female to female, companion to companion, husband to wife, uh, fathers to, to daughters, and fathers to sons, parents to children, etc., etc. 
like Hashem, our justice should be an extension of who we are as believers in Messiah Yeshua. It is not something that we try and put on and take off, look good in front of the eyes of everyone else. It actually should be um, wedded to our the character of the individual. Okay, We should be just people in our rulings, in everything that we do. It should be a part of our makeup, internal and not merely outward, in its appropriation and in its application. Amen? Amen. In other words, as I stated in Parashat Shoftim last week, justice should be pursued. And with that, let's draw my commentary to a close. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torat Emet Vechaye Olam Nata Batochenu Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have, ever pl- and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. I wish you all a Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. Thank you.